is Swampside Chats. The podcast where every week, communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week, in the latest installment of our ongoing series, In the Enemy Camp, we look at the work of a man known as the crown jurist of the Third Reich, political theorist Carl Schmitt, and his piece, Political Theology, Four Chapters on the Concept of Sovereignty. I'm Jake. I'm with Communist League Tampa. Joining me tonight is Grant. Hey there, Grant from Emancipation. Rosa? Rosa from Emancipation and Communist League Tampa. And Donald. Donald, Communist League Tampa. All right, so tonight we are talking about, uh, well, generally the piece by Carl Schmidt. What's it called Political again? theology. Political theology, thank you. And the specifically, specifically the third chapter, but we'll, um, it will be the focus of the conversation, but uh, we, the concepts from the whole thing are kind of applicable, I understand. Yeah, we're kind of just going to talk about Carl Schmidt tonight. Okay. But, uh, the text that we read was part of political theology. And um, I've also, me and Rosa have read other stuff by him as well, so... Yeah, we know a little bit about Schmidt. He's kind of a he's a weird thinker because like we're kind of in the enemy camp here to begin with because he was raging reactionary, and um, at the same time his ideas are kind of accepted in left wing academia as like being like useful and like worth studying. Like for example, Antonio Negri is a big Carl Schmidt fan. Like, so, I don't know, I was just going to start off talking about, like, Schmidt's life because it's pretty um interesting, actually. Like, uh, basically, during the Spartacus uprising, like, some Reds basically killed an officer that he was working for as a jurist. Like, they basically just, yeah, I guess he was, like, an especially hated officer in the German army. And some proles who were probably mutineering soldiers just, like, went and, like, killed him. Like basically you know public execution style right in front of schmidt and so from then on he just had like a raging hatred of communism and a raging fear of communism and this is like at i whenever i you just feel this constant like fear of communism and in his works and kind of like uh this fear that communism will subvert democracy to make this kind of um, dictatorship, being a dictatorship necessary, which is basically, you know, which, you know, he writes these, um, what he writes these things like a political theology and concept of the political in Weimar Germany, where you basically had this attempt at, you know, taking the classic rule of law constitutional state and having a parliament. And Schmidt is trying to kind of make a legal theory of the constitutional state as it exists. And his main influence is Thomas Hobbes. So, um, yeah, he goes on to basically become a jurist for the Third Reich. That's where the very sketchy part of his career begins. Because, like, you know, during the 1920s, he was probably like a, like a free corps supporting, like, reactionary. 
because you had all this stuff going on in Germany between um, the workers' parties and unions versus these reactionary groups like the Free Corps and um, all these different right-wing insurgent groups. So um, Schmidt was growing. These are all written in that context where you have like constant class warfare for periods of time. And then like a moment of like a few years of stability and then like another breakout of class warfare that in Germany often would like lead to armed warfare between like, you know, political partisans. And I would say his his obsession with social peace is very contingent on on where he's coming from, from Weimar. Yeah, social peace and order. He's very one thing I noticed, too, is like he's very obsessed with order and social order which is kind of what all right-wingers are kind of obsessed with is like how do we make society as homogenous as possible to maintain a really cohesive social order and, and schmidt is definitely obsessed with that what i was think that? a lot of the baggage in in schmidt really comes from hobbes i mean not to say he wouldn't have got there on his own somehow but in terms of the the intellectual content i think yeah, the best I never want to get to that later because Hobbes. he basically takes Hobbes' anthropology. Right, and that's not an anthropology I take seriously, which is, which, which, I think I think his ideas are where he shines and then where you see him borrow from Hobbes, and, and that's really a lot of the foundational stuff, is where Schmidt is easier to attack. Well, I, there's a part of political theology where he says... Um, all politics is basically a theory based on whether you think human nature is good or bad. If you think human nature is bad, you're like the maestra, you know, and you're like the Catholic reactionaries, and you think a strong integralist order and of tradition is needed to, you know, maintain order and cohesion because people are naturally bad. You need like a state with a sovereign that can exercise a state of exception in case things get out of hand. So basically... Like he thinks, you know, like Hobbes, it's a war of all against all, and the state has to basically like make everyone um, follow, you know, ba basically everyone fall in line because and keep this war of all against all from destroying society. And then he says, well, if you think human nature is inherently good, you're basically a liberal, and you think that we'll all just like discuss this in the court of law and we'll figure it out. You're. No, you're an anarchist. Like, oh, yeah, an anarchist. Well, he kind of makes anarchism out to be like extremist liberalism, I guess. Which it, it kind of is. I mean, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, but he kind of uses the anarchist as like the example of the uh, the person who's so politically naive to think that like humans are just perfect if we just let them be to themselves, like everything will be fine. And so he takes these two, so he says the Marxist. Like tries to just dodge this question completely. You could say, say, well, human nature is determined by society and history and changes. So, like, you can't really base politics off this foundational claim of what is human nature, anyway. So, yeah, take that. But um, yeah, that's that's an important point. But I was gonna get on to. I would say though, just to interject, first off, I do think he has a lot more in common with anarchists than he realizes, and anarchists with him, sadly, like. Well, his concept of state power is kind of like what anarchists think the state actually is. Well, well, and not just that, but the general framing of social tension as a kind of inherent thing, right? Like, I think in anarchism today, we see society as too problematic towards interest groups or something like that. And so social peace can't be helped that way. We need to abolish central power 
to protect minorities during states of exception where Schmidt says something kind of the opposite, but the same. And so I think part of anarchism is this like fear of majoritarianism that, that kind of points in similar directions to Schmidt. Well, I would say that's more like modern day, like post leftist, like individualist anarchism. Yeah. Today, yeah, like, for sure. I, I don't think classical anarchism, it, the, the anarchism that Schmidt's talking about is like Bakunin, Kropotkin, like the actual anarchist who believed in this, like, I, like Kropotkin had this idea of mutual aid, that humans were evolutionarily like designed to basically become cooperative and peaceful with one another. And there's another part where he talks about um, some actually, he actually mentioned Soviets as like an example of kind of like these associative theories of law that like, um, could allow us to overcome overcome these social contradictions. But Schmidt, yeah, he he is basically like Thomas Hobbes and thinks humans are ultimately bad. And so when the crisis of the Weimar Republic really comes to a head in 1933, you know, he sides with reaction. He sides with the Nazi party, you know, because when it comes down to it, he hates the communists. He thinks that, you know, they want to destroy this homogeneity and social cohesion that he sees as central to the family. He hates the anarchists. He hates, and he also says that the Marxists are basically anarchists just and you know, in a different way, like, you know, they're anarchists in the end anyway. So I'm, I think his hatred is more intense towards liberalism. He sees communism as a threat, but well, he sees, yeah, liberalism sees, is like this, this horrifically weak ideology that cannot stop the threat of communism. So there needs to be a stronger ideology to come in and stomp out communism. Yeah. And he, in political theology, he, he makes like the first part is him basically like, just, just like shitting on communism, Marxism as a whole, just like comparing it to like, um, sort of like a hyper mysticism basically insane. But he also vice. complains about it being overly economistic too. Yeah, he, in compare basically he, he weird it's like a weirdly dialectical critique in a way because he he basically says that the, it, like it like ends up fading into hy the hyper materialism of marxism ends up fading into hyper mysticism and vice versa and it's it, it becomes weirdly religious in tone and then like later on he uh, later on from what i read he he basically like he gives like he goes from like criticizing marxism really harshly to basically giving a really 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 like basic class analysis of the development of liberalism as an ideology as an ideology of the bourgeois in between like the reactionary elements the reaction of the aristocracy and the the progressive elements of the masses, the democratic elements, and basically liberalism as an ideology develops from the bourgeoisie needing to like use the masses in order to gain positions of power, and the aristocracy and the aristocracy to to maintain the position of power that they have, based. And this leads to like the aristoc forces uh, reactionary ideologies and Marx and like sort of Marxism and like left wing ideologies having weirdly similar critiques of liberalism and capitalism as a whole.
because yeah. they oh certainly i mean there's stuff have... i saw in here that that definitely resonated i mean there's sort of obvious stuff i think we should take on uh and debunk but there was there was plenty that seemed to me parallel with marxism well yeah like i definitely think that schmidt isn't really hostile to class analysis even in here but he's you know i think he has a really unfair dismissal of marxism like i don't even I feel like he probably just like read the Communist Manifesto and like saw some like propaganda, you know. No, we were, he's read Lukács. Okay, like, so maybe yeah, Lukács and Lenin. Okay, so I'm being an idiot. He probably didn't actually study Marxism, but it's like his attacks. His his I guess like I guess he's right about Marxism on human nature to a degree. But he kind of does. I, I do disagree. Him. I mean, him and Hobbes. I mean, that that's where I think he really falls apart with Hobbes because I, I would say that they both become obsessed with this idea of interest groups, right? And that that interest groups, and you know, for for Schmidt, a lot of it has to do with religion. Interest Jews. groups are going, are going to sort of pull us all apart from this social fabric. But I, I think that this sort of various historic political attempts at usurping power and, and things like that have have more to do with uh you know social chaos than than any kind of natural state of society in fact well, if yeah and that's kind of what he says the anarchist position is is that it's because you have politicians who are like trying to corrupt and well he, I think we should, we should just uh, you have policies that are trying to corrupt so basically like it, it ruins what's otherwise the good human nature but I was just gonna say let's like look at the what does he say political theology what does political theology actually mean for Schmidt because he seems to be he's making a kind of a, he's also making a point just with this concept of political theology and it's well he asserts obviously that the 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 lines of the beginning is famous something about Oh, um, hold on. It's sovereign is he who decides on the exception. Oh, yes, that too, that too. I'm yeah. thinking of a different famous quote, but that one is more famous, so good. <laughs> yeah, and I think that um, from what does that mean, though? I think what he's saying is, like, who holds sovereignty in society, who holds political and state power is those who are able to decide on when the state of exception is applicable and ultimately when um you know the ultimate violent force of capitalism can be like applied in a way that isn't mediated through all these legal and parliamentary institutions and he kind of says that like sovereignty is always kind of like exercised in this way like the rule of law isn't like this impersonal like set of like equations that just objectively answers the correct thing and that there's decisions being made by people who hold power the entire way through so there never is like this true objective rule of law it's always a result of real humans governing sovereignty but he says ultimately like yeah the sovereignty is you know he who decides on the state of exception and the state of exception is defined by the friend enemy dichotomy basically so you can totally see the fasci aspects of this where basically well, like politics is who the state determines is the friend and then and it's a war on who the state determines is the enemy and the sovereign has the ability to determine who the friend and enemy is in the in yeah. the long run in the well, end the thing that like connects this back to hobbes is that they're both obsessed with this state of emergency where the state needs to stomp something out stomp out a revolutionary force crisis yes 
yeah that's, so it, that's related to the historical context though because like you had the kpd like being a mass party in germany using and, parliamentary tactics to get tons of votes while and, also organizing street militias and so like he's thinking like yeah if a state is going to have to use article 48 to create a dictatorship to destroy this communist threat yeah and you also have like thomas hobbes who like just did his work under like the just the like present threat of the um the english civil war like that's a historic uh press that's basically the basis of his work is just like the fear that came out of the um the fear and sort of chaos that came out of the english civil war and it's the same with the maestra who he constantly references because the maestra is the ultimate like catholic counter-revolutionary pro-monarchy theocratic politician anti-democratic politician who automatically sees all humans as bad because he's re he, he wrote reflections on the revolution in france and he supported the counter-revolution in france and he saw like the reign of terror as like you know basically like the true evil satan itself being like unleashed by the masses through democracy and schmidt sees democracy in a similar way which is interesting because he kind of actually theorizes a contradiction with liberalism and democracy because if you want to maintain the rule of law and maintain these um this order but you also have like a democratic system that gives like sovereignty to the people like eventually the two are going to collide because the rule of law and the general the sovereign the general demands and needs of the people are going to collide eventually in collide of the interests of private property via the rule of law. So therefore, you always will have to sometimes have this kind of democracy creates the need for a state of exception. And so he sees that as like the enemy of creating homogenous society. Yeah, you right. can see this through. Go ahead, Rose. Like the, this all this is just like sort of common wisdom and like political political uh, theory, just going back all the way to Aristotle, really, when goes back like when you look at it it goes all the way back to aristotle who like talked aristotle and like the greek philosophers who talked about the threat of the demo of democracy in the masses yeah like the whole idea of that the demos is a, a threat and that we need philosopher kings to like counter the demos i mean right. it is for them that's exactly the exactly like and so this is, um, this is why uh, Schmidt is one. This is one other reason Schmidt is of interest to Marxists because he does understand this contradiction between liberalism and democracy. Absolutely. Whereas, like a lot of Marxists have a very vulgar interpretation of them. Basically, like democracy and liberalism are the same thing. They're both natural outgrowths of capitalism, and they're just pure ideological expressions of like the needs of the bourgeoisie. Whereas democracy itself historically often developed antagonistic to the bourgeoisie and what the bourgeoisie really fights for often is social order and social cohesion right i mean and even the the enlightenment's most reactionary defenders and we both know that was a mixed bag not purely progressive certainly not reactionary the way plenty of people I mean, assert it today but but none of them even enlightenment regardless of how bad steven pinker and the new atheist are Right, but none of, nobody who defended the Enlightenment, reactionary or progressive, so to speak, could assert that it asserted itself without coercion, naturally, right? And so the, the crises that Schmidt anticipates, it's always something 
that could be beyond the pale of any bourgeois legal norms. One, because I think he recognizes what anti-politics people see, which is, and not just anti-politics people, I mean, I think we all see this, which is that legal forms under capitalism have a serious disconnect between economic and social relations. But more importantly, that, that sweeping historical changes happen outside of constitutionality and legality. Um, and and that a lot of that stuff that he's worried about of this anti anti liberal democratism can't be resolved within an established order's norms, or at least the established order of the bourgeoisie. Yeah, and that's why it's the sovereign, like having a, a sovereign authority, is so key to him because it's only through the unlimited use of authority by a sovereign power that you can ultimately solve these contradictions. And I think that's so. And, uh, I was just going to say to add the historical element, like. Schmidt, in, in 1934, when Hitler purged the brown shirts, the SA, which were the um, Strasserite faction of the party, they were considered more socialist, quote unquote, than the rest of the Nazis. But they were also more virulently and violently anti-Semitic. And when Hitler had those people purged from the National Socialist Party, Schmidt was the one who wrote the legal order to do it. Like he literally like. You know, he actually wrote like legal orders for the Third Reich to perform the state of exception, as he describes here. Right. And he totally, yeah, we were like, talking. He was at Nuremberg. Yeah, he's even given the nickname the Crown Jurist of the Third Reich. Right. I, I just think too, though, it's interesting because in an actual crisis, it's hardly the sovereign who ever steps in. It's often disasters that are the clearest demonstration of this kind of loose rule that revolutionary social transformations often follow where society is forced to step in, where the state no longer can perform in its dysfunctional way a given socially reproductive function. And, and so it's, it's fascinating to me that, that the sovereign is, is so important in the state of emergency. And I, I guess I understand in a period of political crisis, obviously, you use dictatorial powers to blah, 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 blah. I get that that's been a strategy that's been used before. But yeah, I mean, for some reason, it, I had this cheesy moment where I could only think of um, when when that plane landed on the Hudson a few years ago, and all the people are, you know, bringing their boats over. I mean, it's and it doesn't have to happen by any law or or anything. It's just sort of a natural impulse that people have, uh, socially emergent, really. I mean, but I mean, look at it. Like you got the history of you have. You know, 1973 Chile with Pinochet. You have um, many leftist movements that are wiped out by dictatorships that kind of exercise this um, unyielded sovereignty. Like the classic fascist movements of the 1920s and 30s are an example of this, but also just different like dictatorial governments throughout the world. And um, yeah. right, right. It, it definitely happens. I, I guess what I mean more is that in in all societies, it seems across the board, the state takes a lot of responsibility for managing crisis that isn't actually done by the state. And I mean, social tension type crisis. Sure, they're willing to send in, you know, the free corps and, and shoot everybody. But in terms of of uh, more underlying social tensions, it the state just I mean, to kind of keep well, things moving. Uh, well, the state of exception that, is for existential crises. Yeah, well, the thing, uh, Richard Wollen, uh, this sort of critical, what I like to call a critical theory liberal, he's like in the Haber, 
Habermas tradition, and he was like, I think it was even directly taught, like he was a student of Habermas. But he wrote this essay about Carl Schmitt, and basically his critique of Carl Schmitt was that he subjects politics to basically conflict. And that when Carl Schmitt talks about like, talks about the political, the political, capital P political, that sort of thing, the state of exception, it's all in a matter of conflict. It is specifically moment of conflict, and it well, doesn't really cover this idea that you can easily divide people into friends and enemies based on their. I don't think that's true. I mean, I, I think we all know here that capitalism creates strange bedfellows, and and all sorts of times people well, have a mix of contradictory, immediate, and long term interests. It's not a rational basis. He never argues that it's particularly rational. That's, I mean, if anything, then, he puts it forward as a myth and a miracle. Yeah, it's something that has to be arbitrarily drawn in order to maintain sovereign. Even maintain the sovereign or create the conflict, it needs to be drawn arbitrarily. And but, the but reason why he finds communism to be threat in political theology, in pol and um. In, theory, in the theory of political, he talks about why communism is a, gr is a great threat, particularly why communism is a great threat, is because it draws the distinction. Lenin and Lukács and the communists are able to draw the distinction across national lines, violating sort of sovereignty of nations. They are able to turn they are able to draw the distinction between friend and enemy on a global level that the entire bourgeoisie and the proletariat is the friend enemy distinction drawn on that line though he doesn't believe that he he sort of like dismisses the idea that it can never that this conflict like he plays with the idea that this could possibly lead to like an end of like conflict and the political as a concept, but he, he sort of just dismisses outright and just hand waves it away. Yeah, because he's just he does not have the faith in human nature to believe that it's even possible. He has the Hobbesian view of human nature, which is, which is again based on these interest groups that I think Marxism would. So so you know, Marxism would argue really that that these social tensions don't fragment people along interest in the long term, that, that sure you can provide these short-term incentives towards political impositions of things like segregation, for example, but that ultimately, you know, Schmidt's ideal state exists in permanent counter-revolution against the inherent bubbling tensions of a classed society. Uh, these, these, Tensions, though, actually resolve themselves in a perfectly majoritarian way. And this is what I was starting to say a little bit earlier about the anarchists is I think they have something in common with Schmidt in that, you know, when you have a very, very hyper decentralizing tendency, and of course, centralization is sometimes empowers society against the state, decentralization sometimes empowers society against the state and capital. But, but generally, if you're obsessed with decentralization, I think it comes from not seeing I think it comes from a similar opinion about human nature to Schmitz and this idea that 
in a mass society, people are always going to conflict with each other in this fundamental way that has to be managed from a force that at least claims to be from without. Yeah, I think what's interesting... I, I just think it falls apart because Hobbes is wrong. Hobbes is wrong that people naturally fall along these lines of, of objective oppositional interests. I think that in the long term, Marxism shows the majority of people with a majoritarian social interest in in even protecting minority interests, let alone advancing majority interests. I, I think they're one and the same. No, I mean, I think he's wrong about human nature, but I honestly think he describes, like, class consciousness relatively well, and I think he, like, draws from Lenin and Lukács in particular in terms of, like, creating the friend-enemy distinction on an international level. Like, sure, in the long term, that Marxism is a humanist project that helps to overcome, like, the divisions of humanity, but we have to do this in a dialectical uh, I mean, yeah. Way no, I crazy. agree with you on the international like, state. And it will only be done through, like, the elimination of the bourgeois, like, liquidation of the class. This doesn't mean murdering them, like, in fucking Holocaust, of course, but... Or, like, the malice. It's going, it's going to be a bloody process, just on, like, a basis of war and that sort of thing. And I well, don't think yeah, there's I think any it... way we can sugarcoat it. This is what I'm going to say is the uh, the Marxist. What is the Marxist theory of the state? Is that essentially the state upholds the rule of the bourgeois, it upholds the rule of the capitalist class, and it's instrument of repression for the purpose of the capitalist class to maintain its control. And Schmidt is writing from as a, he's not writing as a capitalist. He's writing as a state bureaucrat essentially. So I do think that capitalists and state bureaucrats often have differing ideologies. But um, so, yeah, he's writing from the position of like maintaining social order. He's not really looking at it from how do we keep the free market and like, you know, how do we keep the free market as, you know, vibrant as possible? He's looking at it from a, a way of social cohesion. Yeah. Like ultimately, ultimately, the way he looks at the state and the way Marxists look at the state are are basically practically the same. Yeah, it's exactly. a blunt it's instrument true. to be used against against the enemy. Yeah, I In a way. I disagree because I think Marx and Engels also talk about the the state as having sort of a semi-independence from the bourgeoisie, for example. So it's not just a guarantee against the conflict of other classes, it's a guarantee against the vulgar self-interest of the rest of your classes. He's also thinking of ethnic conflicts because Schmidt is also a huge anti-Semite. You have insane nationalism in Europe at this time. And so he's also looking at, and this is kind of how international relations theorists of the bourgeois today have used Schmidt. For example, the whole clash of civilization theory by Samuel Huntington that inspires like a lot of neocon global, global crusader bullshit. And, you know, this whole idea that we need to, you know, invade Iraq and support Israel to fight the global battle against Islam is based on this friend-enemy distinction between the West and Islam. And, like, Schmidt is used to argue for a lot of these neocon foreign policy things because he's a political realist and we need to be real. America is an empire and it needs to maintain stability in the world. So, you know, we're going to exercise the sovereignty of the U.S. empire 
in order to maintain its cohesion. Yeah, basically, in making states of exception. In theory of the partisan, like he really outlines like the neocon foreign policy doctrine to the to the T. Like you can hear it in a fucking. I I keep on mentioning Chuck Schumer saying this, saying that there are no there are no civilians in Gaza, there are no civilians in Palestine. Well, that's basically the philosophy of fucking Carl Schmidt in in the theory of the partisan. Because in in the theory of the partisan, the overarching argument is you cannot treat partisans, these sort of civilian soldiers, like normal soldiers. You can't treat them in the way that like international law wants to treat them post-World War II as like sort of soldiers, people with the benefits of, you know, just people normal People you can take as prisoners of war, right? Yeah, Who things have, like, like that. You can't treat them. Because they don't act like soldiers, they 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 use dirty tactics. They 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 are essentially citizens and soldiers. It's the worst yeah, of both worlds. Yeah, that's So, so you have to just sort of run them all down. Essentially, you you can't you can't you can't worry about international law or all those liberal niceties. You just gotta mow them down. See, that's and what that's I like what about basically. It. Ch- it's because he's yeah, basically describing Chuck... the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie at its most like raw. He's basically just like saying, "Yeah, it only comes down to dictatorship, and it's a dictatorship yeah, of the bourgeoisie." So he basically does have the same theory of the state as the Marxist. He just does it very differently. He's from the perspective of the state. Exactly, he's writing yeah. from within the state and trying to maintain social cohesion in Weimar yeah. Germany. And what's creepy about this is it's echoed from supposed liberals. Like, neoconservatism is supposed to be a liberal theory, like general American liberalism. Like, every form of politics just goes back to liberalism in the United States, like the broader philosophical framework of liberalism. And Carl Schmitt is ultimately drawing upon, like, a liberal Enlightenment philosopher when he draws upon Hobbes, because Hobbes... Hobbes, as much as he's a counter-revolutionary, he's, he's using the rational method of the Enlightenment. He's, he's going about this in a w- weird anthropological way. He's a man, Enlightenment man. He's a mathematician. He's all these things that are valued. And he's of the bourgeois, the developing bourgeois. And he just develops this sort of like totalitarian theory of the state. And this is this is the underlying principle of Anglo-American liberalism. It's also unintentionally the underlying principle, underlying principles of, of like German conservatism. These are just forces of reactionary reaction. Only one, the Anglo-liberal, uh, Anglo-liberal conservatism and Anglo-liberal um, lib- liberalism as a whole generally coats it more in the Enlightenment. Well. German conservatism and continental conservatism is more closer to just hardcore reaction. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's... He's kind of trying to make, like, a rationalist, like, theory of counter-revolution. Another thing I thought was interesting is he agrees with the anarchists in another sense, where he says, like, political concepts are basically secularized religious concepts. Because if you've read Bakunin's God in the State, 
which I actually have read Bakunin. I don't think a lot of people actually read Bakunin, but it basically makes an argument that the state is an irrational institution because religion is irrational and the state is like an expression, like the idea of sovereignty of the state is the same as like the dominion of God and the whole ideology of the rule of law is the same as the Bible to justify the rule of, you know, uh, just basically like justify God, which justifies the rule of the monarch. And in the end, like all states, you know, resort to sovereignty and dictatorship, just like, you know, any kind of monarchical, like religious state will. And so Schmidt basically says, yeah, this is basically true. Like our modern political concepts are secularized forms of, re of religious ideas. And that's where the whole idea of political theology comes from. It's basically that politics is secularized theology. But he doesn't want to abolish politics and move beyond the state. He wants to basically run it as realistically as possible. And this, and so that's why he kind of, that's why a lot of like international relations, people influenced by him call themselves realists. Oddly enough, LaRoche LaRouche was the first one to point out this relationship that he has between like Carl Schmidt and like the um, Carl Schmidt and like the neocons. It's weird because it eventually was like picked up like by mainstream liberals and you see it in um uh, what was the documentary that Adam Curtis did about like the development of uh, the power of nightmares. Like, I, I, I remember him briefly talking about, like, Carl Schmidt and... Re no, Leo Strauss. And Leo Strauss is, like, indirectly influenced by Carl Schmidt. Well, actually directly influenced. Like, they had a dialogue. Fuck. Was you were asking about the Adam Curtis documentary about neoconservatism? Yeah, I was at, like, The Power of Nightmares. Yeah, The Power of Nightmares, yeah. Like, it, it brings up Leo Strauss as being, like, the figurehead of, like, neoconservatism. And, like, Leo Strauss is, like, was in direct dialogue with Carl Schmidt. Oh, yeah, exactly. And, like, they both respected each other. And, I mean, yeah. Hannah Arendt also respected Carl Schmidt. And she is one of the prime, I guess she's more of a centrist liberal. But she does have a very, like, negative view of revolution. Like, for example, she says the American Revolution was the only good revolution because it wasn't made mostly by poor people. And the French and Russian revolutions are so violent and brutal because it's the poor revolting. And so she has, like, um, she she was in, um, you know, she talked to Schmidt. So, like, all of the, a lot of modern architects of our modern ideology have grappled with Schmidt's thought in various different ways. All across the spectrum, I think, including Marxists. And it's, um, I think it's important to do that. I will say there's a lot of parallels. There's a lot of things we can look at and go, oh, here's, here's a parallel on the left and right. You know, here's Marxism and Schmidt agreeing. But the devil really isn't in the details on a lot of all this stuff. Like, if we talk about politics, right, I think Marxism can trace the development out of out of late feudalism of this you know with the introduction of bourgeois right with the introduction of a heightened separation between legal relationships uh that sort of and social relationships more generally i i don't know i i think that the devil is in the details and that if you look at the history of the emergence of the state like i i wonder where schmidt sees the state oh. as originating does he see the oh. anti-state as the start of the state or does he see 
the bourgeois state as a historically unique form, things like that, that I didn't catch in at least the parts of political theology we read for today. Yeah, that's well, like, well, he probably sees all past states before the bourgeois democratic state as just like the, like, uh, like religious autocracies. Like theological states, and then this is the political state? Almost. Yeah, for example, and he, like, uh, one thing that actually made me think about this idea of like theological ideas of politics become secularized and kind of like the difficulty of this it almost it reminded me of Robespierre's like attempt to like start a church of reason and like make like a and also the god builders in the Bolshevik party like Lunacharsky who wanted to like build a new god to replace the death of the old god and so there's this attempt to kind of like you know replace politics what what, what people get out of divinity with politics and there's like a, a lot of people recognize that I mean, we we certainly see it on on across the political spectrum, left to right, with people's engagement with activism and things of that nature. I mean, I'm not trying not to defend activism, but what exactly do you mean? I'm not saying anything that involves getting out of the house, if that's what you're wondering. Uh, just in terms of yeah, I know, I know. I mean, I understand activism is different from organizing and everything. I'm just wondering how does that relate to. Uh... I'm just wondering how you thought activism related to religion, because that just is an interesting thought. In the sense of telling you to do works, I suppose, proselytizing, things of that nature, good works. And kind of being politics, you know? Go on, sorry, I was talking over that. Well, I was saying Schmidt would kind of laugh at the idea of active, modern left activism of being politics, because... He sees politics as, you know, grappling with sovereignty and the battle for sovereignty and the ability to make the the definition of sovereignty. And he, yeah. he understands that, you know, it's all about he doesn't think the state can be abolished. So he thinks this this category, the political will always exist. And he says that the Marxists, they want to destroy the political and just make everything a question of administration and economics, which is basically what we want to do. But for Schmidt, he sees something like very important about the political that it needs to always exist, and it's an vital. identity that we can define ourselves by. Do I mean? Do human beings always need this in-group, out-group sense? It does get to fundamental questions. Yes, he is saying that human beings do need this fundamental in-group, out-group sense. So therefore, the state will always have to repress them, which touches on our own discussions about Reich and Freud, for example. I mean, the way he defines the political, I think it's like almost transhistorical because it's dependent upon conflict and sovereignty. Like, yeah, political theology develops out of like, out of like a secularization of theolog theological concepts, but at the same time, it's like the threat of the so need for sovereignty and the the presence of like conflict are always there. In the development yes. of human, but yes. I would say I'd like to read, like to read Marxist... version of Origin of the Family. You know what I mean, like family, private property, and state. Well, I was going to point more towards the future because the idea of Marxism is by abolishing class antagonisms, you abolish the state. And if we identify the state with the politics, that would mean yes, it is indeed true. I will grant this to the anti-politics crowd that yes, the end goal of Marxism is technically to end politics. So, like, I think it, I think the idea is that basically if we end class antagonisms, yeah, there will still be conflicts and needs to resolve these conflicts, but it won't rely on this sovereign 
who has to resort to a state of exception, essentially. That basically humans will collectively work these problems out. There won't need to be some kind of you know state body alien to the people, essentially, that enforces its sovereignty through repressive measures. Or as sort of we point to in in Marx's early writing and, and some of the later stuff as well, even but but the the general notion of a state standing or claiming to stand above society and sort of this Hegelian inversion Marx wants to do. I really recommend people just go for themselves and read critique of philosophy of right. But this idea of abolishing the state as standing apart from society is complete. It's very alien to somebody like Schmidt's ideas. I'll say that. Well, I think Schmidt does those kind of see the the contradiction between the state, the state, and then like disconnect actually pretty well between politics and society in a way that I don't think a lot of right wingers are willing to to concede because they want the state to the state's legal norms to embody everything, and so if you concede that there's any kind of disconnect between the state and and society or what have you, that legal norms can run behind social norms, things like that then you get into all sorts of dangerous territory, I think, for fascists, because then what happens when the society is more correct than the state or something like that? Well, for the fascists, and actually he does actually talk about the organic state somewhere in here, and the idea of, um, here it is, the unity that a people represents does not possess this decisionist character. It is an organic unity, and with national consciousness, the ideas of the state originate as an organic whole. And so, like... Let's just be honest. This guy was a raging anti-Semite, and in Nazi Germany, the friend-enemy dichotomy for you know the state was Judeo-Bolshevism versus the German Volk, like or the other way around, friend-enemy or whatever. But like, yeah, that was you know the friend-enemy distinction that defined Nazi Germany. And so when he talks about these organic states and needs for a like homo- homogeneity, one can't help but think of, you know, his states. open anti-Semitism, ethnostates. What the all- it's funny, Richard Spencer was like a Schmidt um, scholar when he was in um, grad school. So it's like, you know, this stuff is, you know, there is a lot of very reactionary to the core stuff in here. But what it's interesting, like I said before, is it shows the ideology of the bourgeois dictatorship in its most like naked form. And from from a civil servant, I think, as as Rosa was saying, that provides a very unique perspective. He's basically theorizing class struggle, whether he realizes it or not, from the perspective of like the cap yeah. the capitalist class. Not necessarily the bourgeois, because people often forget this, but the bourgeois and the capitalist class are not necessarily the same. It, it, there's well, wouldn't it be? Hold on. Right, I was thinking the other way around too. Like, I mean, isn't the capitalist class technically the owners of capital, and like the bourgeoisie would be like all of the um, upper, like basically those who make bourgeois incomes off working for them and like being their ideological, like you know, cronies. Yeah, I, yeah, that makes more sense. That makes yeah, sense. so well, I think like I thought, you were, I thought I thought a part of the bourgeoisie, even though he did, he hates how the bourgeoisie just want to talk about everything in parliament and not just like get shit done. But he's like he is a part of the bourgeoisie, 
He's just uh, he's part of the civil servant class, like caste of the bourgeoisie. So he has a different so idea of he's, he's bourgeois yeah. other kin. He wants to be the aristocracy, like most yeah, weird exactly. conservatives. He's a civil servant within the bourgeois state who hates the rule of law and hates like lawyers because like he just he thinks and he hates parliament because it's just in the end a bunch of chattering until someone makes a final decision and in the end you know it's the, all the chattering really wasn't necessary and the decision made was should have just been made from the beginning by someone who had the power to well yeah no i mean he's kind of right that politics there's a lot of sound and fury signifying nothing going on there yeah, yeah. that's not the <laughs> political to him the political yeah. is like no, I mean just parliamentary politics even just in a yeah that's liberalism against politics that. though that's yeah, the thing exactly. like he, like liberalism like okay so in political theology he talks about the way in which liberalism like tries to make make what is what is political what is inherently political either economical or ethical or just anything but politics. And he's, he talks it's, a lot about being afraid of depoliticization, yeah. Yeah, essentially what liberalism does is it wants to draw away from politics because it does not want to deal with that sort of conflict. It is in their nature, after all, being a sedentary class of chattering... Yeah. Bureaucrats. Well, the thing is, um, what was I going to say? Like the, uh, in, um, I remember reading concept of political. He also critiques liberalism as basically like there's only liberalism is simply just like objection to state power and objection to, um, you know, interference by the state. It's completely a negative ideology. It only exists to be against like, you know, like it is kind of true. Liberals are against market, um, in interference against tyranny like pure liberalism against, you know, any kind of um, repression of like, you know, what are seen as the natural rights. And so, you know, she just sees that as this purely negative ideology that stands for nothing. So he almost respects the communists a little bit more than the liberals because the communists actually have a positive vision and want to use the political for an end and not just like kind of be like these technocrats managing things. Um, yeah, he also like, um, he contrasts like, the nature of like liberalism as being like an individual project that reduces society to in atomized individuals to like politics as an effort a collective effort based on yeah read people in the enemy camp who have a and i mean the way any of us here would want to see quote unquote democracy implemented is very different than this but again, he, he, he draws a distinction between liberalism and democracy where he almost goes, oh, yeah, well, liberis, liberalism is really the anti-democratic one, not me and my right wing stuff. And says, you know, liberalism <laughs> interferes with, with the people declaring the state of exception when they want to and things like that. So it's really it's really incredible. I don't think we've gone in the enemy camp on somebody who defends democracy against liberalism before i mean that's well yeah i don't think he defends he just differentiates it you know yeah yeah he's like able to 
tell right. that. I mean, at least it seems like he's trying to reconcile democracy kind of begrudgingly to, and I, I thought I saw you talking about this a little bit with someone somewhere, begrudgingly reconciling uh, this, this democratic order that has blatantly kind of come onto the scene with its survival, which he thinks depends on shedding liberalism. Yeah, well, basically, like, Throughout history, democracy is just another word for class struggle. That's what it constantly is. That's what it's, it is in Aristotle and like the Greek philosophers. That's what it is in the Federalist Papers. That's what it is whenever in just general bourgeois political philosophy. That's what they mean by democracy. That's why ultra-left whining about democracies, it, it is just a just like it doesn't fit with any kind of conception of it's democracy. infantile it is infantile it it's not even what the left communists that they read thought i mean it's crazy yeah genuinely but bordiga actually does like literally argue against voting in one of his later articles and says that like the party will just be led by like you know the true knowledge of the program yeah, so Bordiga and Schmidt are actually kind of similar because, like, you know, Bordiga is like, oh, all this democratic process doesn't matter. What matters is that, like, someone that the program is enforced by a sovereign authority. And Schmidt is also kind of it's like, oh, it, it doesn't really matter. All this democratic chattering doesn't really matter in the end. Like, it's a sovereign authority, like, in, like forcing order. So, yeah. like, Bordiga and I can see a, like a Bordiga Schmidt like a uh, combination. With regards to the idea I mean, of democracy, I mean, the whole concept is just a general right wing concept of like just smashing class struggle, just like submitting it, like co opting it and then submitting it. Like, that's the entirety of fascism. Yeah. <sighs> to it's, it's the awful. will of like the nation and the High state. grand mass aesthetics with none of the mass. Yeah, as Bordiga having real content. As Bordiga put it, they the fascist steal the most powerful tool of the proletariat organizing. Yeah, do it through the state. I always like. I usually disagree with Bordiga on fascism, but that quote is spot on. It's just that, like, I mean, on fascism in general, like, I think Schmidt shows how the inherent contradictions of capitalism actually produce fascism in his own way. Because you see this guy trying to, like, write jurisprudence for a liberal democratic society full of class conflict. And eventually he just becomes a Nazi. Like, and it kind of shows how, like, this attempt to... It's really about maintaining order, I think, like, in how he sees it. Because he's a civil servant and his job is to maintain social order. And so he's not, he's not, he's not like I said, he's not going to look at it in terms of profit going to look at it in terms of social cohesion so like i could see schmidt like supporting socialistic policies even if it was to maintain social cohesion no but something funny to me in the at the end of the day though is so much of his he was a civil servant but so much of his ideology comes from necessarily having brushed up against the fact that these laws that legal relationships in capitalism don't represent social reality always and that that the ineffectual nature of democracy and legal maneuvering 
actually compelled him here. It's really interesting because that's in a lot of ways a Marxian observation. Think about it. Like imagine if there was no parliament in Germany, the SPD never grew to be a mass party and then split and formed Spartacus League and the November 1919 revolution never happened and there was never Spartacus League running around killing reactionary generals and Carl Schmidt never would have existed <laughs> because he would have just been like a normie, like I hate that word, but like just like a, t- a typical like state bureaucrat otherwise. Like this is a guy oh, who like, was inspired by a brutal act of violence to just despise communism, even if I feel like he probably secretly admires the theories behind it and like really you thinks Marx kind of has it. a lot. It's, it's baked into his analysis, I think, but a subtle admiration. He politically so much. Like he hates this idea of like, you know, all people having something in common according to the class solidarity and eliminating all the old traditions because he thinks that it's like, he's also kind of a traditionalist in some ways, I think. Like I read some parts of it as kind of like saying that like, if you just have um, pure, like, you have to have, like, an organic tradition to kind of back up, like, a political myth. And that's why, like, theology is so useful for feudal politics. So you can totally see, like, that strain of romantic nationalism here. But he's very probably cynical about it and, like, oh, you know, you know, I don't really believe in all this, like, crazy, like, national mysticism. But, like, it gets the people, like, going, you know... Okay. Another kind of reactionary like that, actually. He like promoted Catholic integralism. I think it was um, Maurice Bars. He was French, but he was actually an atheist, and he just like promoted like extremist Catholicism because he thought it would like make a cohesive social order. And yeah, that's it's also it's also funny, you know, to to go such terrible violence and to have that to be the start of your path towards Nazism is kind of a really great irony yeah but i think it points out that what like in the end nazism was like a war against the proletariat Mm. and i feel like his personal experience made him a conscript in that war against the proletariat because he saw what happens when the masses like are let loose and are outside the sovereignty of the state and so you know everything he didn't really care about like, you know, world communism. He cared about you know making society like have order and be secure. And that's probably why like you know so many like probably like you know like neoconservatives and state like department people. That's probably like so many of them like him because if they just forget about the Nazi stuff, he would really just if you read his early work, he just reads like a guy who really cares about maintaining order. And so if you're a state official and your job is to maintain order, Schmidt's theories are extremely realistic about how politics actually works. So it's, a, it's the whole like ideological package can be like pretty attractive. And I'm not I trying to say that all like, oh, states are fascist, blah, blah, blah. It's ideological detachment, too. I mean, it just seems like it can be molded to fit this friend-enemy dichotomy, all of this. It seems like it can be molded to fit so many other political theories that you you, you gain something there as well. I think that part is part of his appeal, too, on, on top of that for these people, is that it's it's really flexible to anything you want to say. Well, I think, and that's one of the reasons why he was one of the Nazis who got to, like, 
live after World War II and write books and be a, like a, a respected like intellectual, even though he was complicit in like crimes of the Nazis, like he didn't want to lose Carl Schmidt because he had really important things to say about politics and like so we'll just like you know have him. I, I think I think he might have served a little bit of time in jail, but basically like. Right, couldn't say that from the bottom of a well for a while. But he he was rehabilitated back into order. Like he was one of the Nazis who got the you know, like Heidegger, for example. I think academics of all types find Heidegger too useful to throw out because of his Nazism, and it's like kind of Heidegger, Carl Schmidt. Heidegger actually was like discouraged in post-war Germany. Like it took a while for Heidegger to actually be like rehabilitated. That's and true. then that project basically fell apart when the black notebooks came out. And but in the end, when like black you, notes were found. I mean, but there is still like a you know a Heideggerian like strain in philosophy that's like considered left wing. You, yeah. you know, like it's, it's mostly in the post structuralist camp of things. But there is like a, an idea that like you know Heidegger you know can be read outside the context of his Nazism, when actually and I kind of want to read this book instead of actually reading Heidegger. But Dugan wrote a book on Heidegger, and apparently it's like the it's the most accurate reading of Heidegger around. And the only thing is that he Dugan kind of tries to downplay his Nazism, but does not downplay his Volkish nationalism and how it relates to his whole philosophy. What's that text called? Um, it's just I think it's just called Heidegger by Alexander Dugan. Oh, okay. Yeah. I would um, say artist reactionary we've read so far with Dugan as like second place. Yeah. I, I would say though, uh Rosa mentioned too the Federalist papers. That would be a great read sometime soon as well. Uh, Actually, yeah, we, yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, but we have to pick which which Federalist paper should we read. That's the thing. There's like a whole it's just like a whole There's bunch. There's one of that them. Marxists focus on, right? Tend to. I don't know, but I yeah. think like yeah, the Federalist Papers are actually similar to this Carl Schmidt stuff in the sense that it's just like people trying to figure out how to maintain a cohesive social order in the absence of monarchy and tradition. And that's kind of what the American colonists were trying to do in the Revolution was make a society, make a state a nation state that was based on an idea rather than like an ethnicity or religion. Right. And then, and then of, of course, here we are. Well, yeah, I mean, but there's a similarity to that project is, and we want to go beyond the nation state state and make a world without nations. So it is even, it's even more cosmopolitan, but, very, um, very dialectical. Yes. The, our relationship to the, to the founding fathers. <laughs> yeah as long as that you know as long as you don't use cringe as you use that for like cringy popular front stuff like oh this is the socialism of thomas jefferson but anyway oh, i was gonna yeah, see I if love that final. of of the communist parties something communism is the new americanism from the 20th yeah. century. oh my god yeah, that's what i was talking yeah. about was like in the popular front era like that was one of their slogans was like communism is 20th century Americanism and we're the party of like Thomas Jefferson and Abraham Lincoln and Stalin. Like it's, it was really weird. They kind That's of took you around Mount Rushmore. Tom, Tom Jefferson, Abe Lincoln, Jay Stalin. 
<laughs> so yeah. I don't know. Does anyone have any final thoughts? That's some real platypus shit right there. The real that is that is some platypus shit right there. I'm good. Anybody else? Yeah, I'm good. All right. Yeah, I'm good. I'm still here. I'm still here. I'm good. How was the conversation, Jake? It was good. It's good. Did you learn anything? Um. Yeah, I learned. Uh, I learned Dugan apparently has a good piece by piece about Heidegger. <laughs> that's fucking interesting. Yeah, Richard Spencer's wife actually translated it. Oh wow, Richard yeah. Spencer has a wife. Yeah, she's that's like a Russia. She's a Russia file. I really, I really thought that dude was a massive closet case, and he might still be. I guess I don't know. Oh yeah, he's yeah. a massive closet case, but like he found the woman who has is also a massive closet case. <laughs> <laughs> I guess there could be something weirdly beautiful about that. Actually, yeah. I think they There's... might have like separated, but um. They were like married, and he and she had a line in with Dugan. Oh. She never met him, but like she talked to him. Yeah. Oh, there's there's this picture that went around like all right Twitter, of him just standing around these like Asian women, but they thought that they were quote unquote traps, or just like male oh cosplayers. God. Yeah. It's just hilarious. Oh, I, I genuinely hope they are male cosplayers just to fuck with. Oh god, that would be great, honestly. But yeah, Richard Spencer is a big Schmidt fan. That's why he's kind of smart, to be honest. Like, because he was forced to read theory. Yeah, exactly. He actually had to read like the theory behind the stuff and not just like look at memes about like Jews and race statistics and barrel bombs and Assad. It's not fucking bell curve fascism. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. it's more sophisticated because you can be like, oh well I don't dislike, you know, or even think that other ethnic groups are not like are inferior. You know, I don't dislike them or think they're inferior. I just think that societies are better if they're more homogenous, and so we should have ethnically homogenous societies. Like, yeah. that's kind of the argument that modern-day white nationalism tries to go with. Because right. Because they realize that, like, gas to kikes, race war now is not going to, like, fly with the majority of people. But if you convince people that it's, it's, it's okay to only want to live with white people, that's just natural, and it's really the subversive left it makes you like not want to feel that way and make you feel guilty. Like, you know, that that can catch on. Just that the alt-right is like such a shit show. They could never actually like effectively like get their shit together and target the public. Right. I mean, they've tried and they mobilize like 500 people at the most and everybody reacts by hating them. Yeah, it resulted in them completely collapsing and all accusing each other of being Jews slash CIA agents. <laughs> it's like it's like the only people fucking up worse than the fucking left right now. Yeah, it, it, politics it, is like the right. Yeah, that's that's what I was saying whenever we're bitching about the left is like it could be worse. We could be the right. Yeah, we could it, be. It's, it's more comfort. Could be Turning Point USA. <laughs> yeah, or Matt Heinbach gives just. Could be party. I told you guys that I know Matt Heinbeck's ex-girlfriend and she says it's small, like it's like micro, like definitely the root of his insecurities that led him to be a fascist, Wilhelm, right? Yeah. All that. Don't they call him like two finger, two finger Heinbach? <laughs> <laughs>
They were the closest to like a, this, like a classic fascist group in the U.S. before they collapsed too. TWP. Yeah. Like yeah, they were just they were actually borrowing our aesthetics and stuff. What was that? Because they were actually borrowing left wing aesthetics that work for fascists. And, and they actually like agitated for the right. Like they would argue with libertarians about how like national socialism is better, being how the state isn't always bad against the market, and like. Yeah, there there was a, a Southern Poverty Law article that came out about class struggle and the alt right. Uh, there was a good line. There was a funny line from it where like one of the people. There was this guy from like Virginia, this Virginia organization that's like. Yeah, fucking Richard Spencer is... Yeah, Richard Spencer will never attract white working-class youth, and my wife thinks he's a faggot. <laughs> no, he's such a... I mean, I really think he is too much... He doesn't have enough masculine vitalism. Really. Oh, yeah, exactly. Like, he preaches yeah. this whole masculine vitalist message, but he's too, like, intellectual and a fet. So, like, they, like, he actually... Richard Spencer even said, like... Yeah, like, Matt Heimbach was, like, our only real chance to the white working class. Like, they actually tried to organize the white working class where, like, you know, uh, we, like, you know, the National Policy Institute and the Spencer wing of the alt-right, we're too, like, bourgeois and intellectual. And we need, like, people like Heimbach who can, like, reach out to, like, the lower class. But I don't think Heimbach was really that successful at actually reaching out to the lower class. I mean, actually, what I would say is he's... Seems like that in abstract, but you know, his white student union, for example, at Towson was a lot of bark without as much bite as people think. Oh, for yeah, example. it was basically like five people walking around that night. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so he, he's not actually that good of a leader. No, he's not. Yeah. Also, well, you say mean, what you will, it's like the most the way the organization went down is the most white trash way you can have an organization. Yeah, he really did down. have the authenticity there. That was legit. They showed that they were truly like white lumpen pearls destroyed by deindustrialization. <laughs> that, that was like some Mori Povich shit, for sure. <laughs> well, it's funny yeah. though, they all like bought a trailer park to have like a Nazi commune. That's what's even like, that's what's I thought that was pretty funny too. <laughs> God, what a clusterfuck. Yeah. That's it for this week. I was in this episode, but only in the technical sense. I fell behind the reading. Originally, we were supposed to read chapter three just by itself, but everyone else ended up reading all four chapters. I intended to do so as well, but I had some stuff come up during the day that we recorded that ate up the time in which I was supposed to do so. So I just kind of listened to it while I was on it. If you'd like to get a hold of us, you can email us at swampsidechats at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can leave us a good review on iTunes, like our Facebook page, or if you want to uh, if you want to throw a couple of bucks in the hat, you can send some money to our PayPal at communistleagueoftampa at gmail.com, or if you use the cash app, you can go dollar sign cl tampa so until next time keep your boots clean your feet out of the swamp and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow